0: Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, which is pretty close to the end of your New Testament. If you're not familiar with it, you should be able to to find it on a table of contents. It's in the Bibles that are scattered out through the the seating area. We'd love for you to grab one of those if you don't have one and just take it with you. That'll be our gift to you. Um, And and we're going to be in Hebrews now for quite some time, for a long time. If you look back over the last year, those of you who have been with us, uh, we've done quite a few very short series, preaching series. If I remember right, we we did Genesis, the whole book of Genesis in 10 weeks, I want to say. And then we did Colossians in like 6 or 8 weeks. And then this fall, we did all of the minor prophets, that whole section of the Old Testament, in about, about 12 or 13 weeks. Well, this year, we're going to change pace a little bit. This year, we're, we're planning to take the entire year, basically from now until the holidays uh, of 2012, to focus in depth slowly and in and, 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 and much more detail on the book of Hebrews, a letter that was written to a congregation that we know very little about by someone that we don 't even know whose name we don 't even know, but a, a book that has endured ever since it was written as a as a precious encouragement to god 's people it 's a book that uh, that 's fundamentally about the uniqueness of Jesus. It's a book that celebrates him as, as a savior that you can't find anywhere else. And therefore, it's a book that really clashes with a lot of what comes natural to us, I think, at this particular moment. I mean, I think I think it's always easy to say that things are harder to hear in our own culture than they were before. And the Bible has, has, has upset people in just about every culture that it's ever entered into. But in ours in particular, I think we struggle especially with the idea that any one religion can be absolutely true in a way that other religions aren't. That's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, One thing you may or may not have uh, recognized over the break, I don't know, did you guys notice that uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away? Christopher Hitchens was a uh, very famous journalist and author uh, who also, especially in his later years, became best known for his tirades against all religion everywhere. Christopher Hitchens wrote this book uh, most recently, a book called God is Not Great, Subtitle "How Religion Poisons Everything," not one for nuance. Uh, he leaves nothing to the imagination, even his own title. and in the first chapter in that book is a chapter called "Religion Kills." And he goes through all the main religions in the world and shows how because these practitioners of these religions are so convinced that their way to God is the only way to God, it's led them to bombings, to to violence, to civil wars, to, to people dying. So that religion, especially the kind of religion that insists on one particular way to God, is dangerous. It even kills. I don't think we've got to go to Hitchens, though, to know that 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 way of looking at exclusivity, at the uniqueness of any one religion is a tough pill to swallow for us. I mean, you guys who are a part of the Vandy community know that all too well, how tough this pill is, right? I mean, right now, as we speak, Vandy has a law on the books that prohibits any Christian organization from from having a charter as an official Vanderbilt-endorsed organization if they prohibit anyone from leadership who doesn't subscribe to their faith statements. In other words, who doesn't say, if you're a Christian organization, Jesus is God, Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is the only way to the Father. If, if you ask someone to sign that, in other words, if you insist on exclusivity, you're out. It's not just the, those who feel that exclusivity is arrogant or or some sort of condescending, cultural, imperialist way of looking at the world that, that exclusivity is a problem for. I mean, maybe you're like me. The, the notion of Jesus being unique from all the other world's religions is sometimes even hard for me to swallow, not because I have some sort of intellectual or logical objection to it, but just because when I look at the, at the whole world and I look at all these millions and millions of people who are devoted to all these, this whole host of religions, I'm sometimes tempted to think, what are the odds that this one is right in a way that all these other ones aren't? I mean, that's, not, that's not a logical or rational argument. It's just a sort of the weight of just knowing there's a lot of ways to get to God it makes it hard to imagine that we found the right one, that we somehow landed on one that's different from all the others. I, I don't know if you struggle with these questions I have. I know a lot of people have. And the book of Hebrews is a book that hits that question head on. Now I warn you, it hits it head on in a world that's very foreign from ours. It addresses that question on why Jesus is unique, why he offers something that you can't get anywhere else, In the lang- in, 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 through categories and language of things like covenants and tabernacles and priests and blood sacrifices. It's, it's a world of objects and notions that are very foreign from ours. It's going to be a tall order for us to try to bridge that gap and to connect with its message, but... If we work hard at it, it is is totally worth the effort because behind all of the foreignness that is, those concepts, those terms, lies a question that never gets old. The question is, what about Jesus makes him unique? What about Jesus makes him worth trusting when there are so many other options? The answer to that question, the answer for Christians about why they must insist on Jesus offering something that no one else does, something that we all have to have, gets directly at what we need most. What we think needs to happen for somebody to get saved directly impacts the the, the solution to that need or the, 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 the source fulfilling that need. Jesus is unique because Jesus is the only one who can do what we really need to have done for us. That's the claim of Hebrews. That's the claim we're going to try to unpack over the course of this year. What we need most, the mindset of the, all of the Bible and of Hebrews itself, is peace with God. At the root of all disharmony in the world, at the root of all the disharmony in ourselves, is a broken relationship, a kingdom that at once existed as a whole that's now fractured. What's needed is a restoration, a way to connect with what's beyond us and above us, to, to connect with the reason that we're even here, the reason that we were made. In focusing on Jesus and in, in claiming that he is the only way to peace with God, Christians in general, and the book of Hebrews in particular, are not so much claiming that they have found all the right answers, that they have figured something out that no one else has been able to figure out, as they're claiming that they have found the person that matters most and what we need ultimately is not enlightenment it's not a better model or a new law but we need someone who can connect us to God in a way that we couldn't on our own so Hebrews is about Jesus it's what you might call a book of Christology the study of Christ of who he is and what he came to do what he's like what he offers us but it's a, it's a Christology book with a deeply practical purpose. Hebrews was written to urge readers who were tempted to look elsewhere, to hold fast to Jesus, and to warn them of the danger that's, that's found in, in trusting any other alternative. That's what we're looking at this, this year. That's our task for the rest of this study. And it's one we want to jump into immediately this morning by just giving just getting an overview. I just want to give you an overview of what the book says. And its argument is simple. It's this. Jesus is greater So hold fast to Him. Jesus is greater. So hold fast to Him. Well, we're not going to read the whole thing this morning, but I'm going to ask you to stand up, and we're going to read the opening paragraph to this beautiful letter together as a way of launching us into this introduction. This is God's Word from the author to the Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But... having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I've said that, that you can summarize the whole message of the book of Hebrews in, as, as one simple argument, that Jesus is greater, so we have to hold fast to him. Those two parts of that argument are going to be the two parts for our introduction today. The claim that Jesus is greater, which makes up the bulk of what Hebrews is after. And then the call, based on who Jesus is, to hold fast to him. It's what you might call the difference between exposition. That's the way one commentator has put it. Hebrews is all about exposition, an idea explaining it, who Jesus is. And exhortation, a call to do something based on who Jesus is. An application of the point that he's made already. Jesus is greater, so hold fast to him. So what makes Jesus greater? That's the main point of the book of Hebrews. That's the main point of of most of what's in the book. Hebrews is meant to make a case for the supremacy of Jesus compared to all other would-be providers of salvation, to all other would-be providers of security or other paths to peace with God. And you're going to see this a lot, this sort of comparison. Hebrews is a book of comparisons, of analogies between other ways of doing things or past ways of doing things and and Jesus and what he brings to the table. In a a pretty short letter, it's only 13 chapters long, you get this cluster of words, better or greater or or more, approximately 25 different times those words come up. That's his main method. We're going to compare things. But there are two titles two aspects of Jesus and who he is that really set him apart. So the book is full of comparisons, but really if you if you want to take a bird's-eye view on all these comparisons, they really support two different things about who Jesus is. They support a, a notion of Jesus as the Son of God. It's one of the things that sets him apart, one of the reasons he's better from all the other things he's going to be compared to in the letter. And he's our great and perfect high priest. They celebrate Jesus as God and Jesus as high priest. And in those two roles, Jesus appears as greater than all the other options on the table. But rather than just dividing our time into unpacking each of those, I want to go one layer further. What is it about Jesus as son of God and Jesus as high priest that makes him greater than other options that are on the table? I'm going to give you three examples just briefly to introduce you to what's in Hebrews. First, Jesus is greater than because Jesus is God come to us. Jesus is greater, Hebrews argues, because Jesus and Jesus alone represents God, eternal, immortal, and perfectly holy, come to us in a life of flesh and blood and mortality and sinfulness. Jesus is the Word made flesh. This is the first point that Hebrews makes, right at the gate in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. Jesus is compared to several different things on the level of Him being the Son of God who has come down to earth, and that's what makes Him better. So, for instance, He's compared to the prophets. That's what we just read. The bulk of what we just read in the first four verses of chapter 1 are about comparing Jesus to the way God used to speak to people. In the past, we're told long ago, God spoke through the prophets. Prophets like the minor prophets that we just looked at as a congregation through the fall. They were Israel's most revered spokesmen for God. They were rightly celebrated by Israel and looked to as authorities and, and, and put on a sort of pedestal, if you will. They represented God's voice and God's expectations. But according to Hebrews, Jesus isn't just another one of the prophets. He does speak for God, but not like they did. Jesus is greater because Jesus is not just a prophet. He is also the Son of God, entered into history as the final and full communication of everything that God is and everything that He wants from us. Did you get that from from what we read from the first four verses of chapter 1? In the past, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You can see why this makes Jesus greater, I think, right? This is is the difference between... I mean, I'm about to give you a nice graduate school historian's reference. I hope you'll tolerate this. But it's the difference between trusting a secondary source and a primary source, right? You guys remember this from papers you had to write in, in, in history classes? There's certain, There was always like minimum, uh, I remember in, in undergrad basic history classes, you always had to have a certain minimum number of what were called primary sources from the horse's mouth, things that the people you're writing about actually said themselves. You couldn't just go to Wikipedia and write down a quote from Wikipedia and trust whatever whoever wrote that article had to say on it. You had to go to the source. And this is not to say that that the secondary sources that were the prophets' accounts of, of what God had to say or the, the, the history book writers' accounts of what God had to say weren't accurate or trustworthy. It's just that they were limited. They weren't, by and large, God speaking his, from, from his own mouth, from his own embodied life on this earth. And that's what Jesus offers. Jesus offers not a more true account of who God is, but a more full and complete and final account of who he is. He is God's come to us in his word. Next, Jesus in, in chapter 1, who's better, Jesus is greater because he's the, he's the son of God, come to us in a way that the prophets just could not represent. He's also greater though, because, he's also greater as son of God because He's he's higher than even the angels. So... That's a tough reference for us to follow. We don't typically venerate angels around here. I mean, unless you watch Touched by an Angel. I remember that really bad TV show that came on back when I was a kid. Or or maybe you shop for them at at various Christian stores around town, I don't know. But but typically, I mean at least my sense is we don't we're not tempted to to put angels up on a pedestal like maybe the, the readers of Hebrews were. But the point is, whether we are or not, Jesus as Son of God is compared to the angels, and he is shown to be greater because he's the one who made them. Angels are described in chapter 1 as just spirits who go about to do his bidding, whereas he's the one who actually created everything that is. He, he's the reason the world exists and continues to exist by his word of power. So even the, the highest and most holy beings that we can imagine who are there to right in the presence of God, perfect in their holiness, even these beings are just Jesus' handmaidens because he is God made flesh. He's compared to Moses in chapter 3. Jesus is greater because he's God come to us in a way that Moses, even Moses, never could have been. So in chapter 3, Moses is described as being a faithful servant. It's not a knock on Moses. He did everything that was required of him. He was a faithful servant, but, but he was a servant in the house, and Jesus is over the house that is God's people. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, make this point. Now Moses, this was verse 5 of chapter 3, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, right? He was foreshadowing what was going to come. He was helping He was helping the people of Israel anticipate God's coming deliverance, but that's, that's what he was. That's it. A steward or a servant over what's coming. Jesus, in contrast, verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Jesus, verse 3 says, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much as Much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. It's a slightly different take on the same basic analogy. Moses was there as a reflection or anticipation of everything that Jesus actually is. Jesus is greater because he's God made flesh. In short, here's the point. What makes Jesus greater, and this is all connected to him being the Son of God, is that even though he was a man... He was also much, much more. He was man only because he wanted to raise us up to be sons and daughters of God. So the Son of God comes into history so that he can unite himself to us and raise us up to where he has been for all eternity. His humanity is not a limitation in the same way it was for Moses or the prophets, something that made them Temporal, that brought them death, that made their, their impact on us limited in some serious ways. That's not what being a man was for Christ. As the Son of God, he became a man only for the purpose of lifting us up and making us children of God. He came down to raise us up. So how could he do this? How could the Son of God break into history, become like us, and raise us up? as children of God. If that's the goal, how would he pull it off? That gets us to the second thing that I wanted to mention. So Jesus, we're, we're tracing out some of the ways Hebrews is, is making a case for Jesus being greater than all other options. And, and one is that he is God who's come to us. No other religion is offering that. This, this one true maker of the universe taking on human form in, in, in his son and, and using that to unite himself to us and raise us up, how, who else can offer that? But how is it possible? And that's the second thing. Jesus is greater because he becomes our perfect high priest. So if the son is what he always was, think about him and his elevation. If we think about this as a diagram, Jesus starts off here. Okay, He's the son, eternal, higher than the angels, higher than Moses, all the stuff that chapter 1 and 2 is about. Then he, for a little while, chapter 2 tells us, becomes lower than the angels. He takes on human form. Why would he do that? We're told it's to bring many sons to glory. We're told it's to unite himself to us so that we can go back with him. But but how is he going to do that? It has everything to do with his role as a priest. So Jesus starts off here and comes here into our in the incarnation, into our experience, breaks into our world, so that he can live like us and for us, to do the things for us that we have proven through our own through our own history that we're unable to do, to be perfectly obedient and to experience all the things and the temptations that we do, yet experience them without any sin, to, to be who we were supposed to be, so that then he could take us back to God. So if Jesus is greater because he is God come to us, he is also greater because he is the only one who can bring us to God. Does that distinction make sense? He starts here. He comes down. So that he can take us back up. And that's how he does that that's that's the significance of his role as our high priest. A priest in the history of Israel was the person selected from among the people to represent the people for, before God, to go into the holy places and to make sacrifices that symbolize the sin that kept us out of the presence of God directly. The priests were our connecting point. They were the they were the system put into place because things were broken. They were the way we were gonna get back to God. But they were severely limited. Those priests, for instance, Hebrews makes all these points, those priests died. I mean, they lived and died just like we do. So their ministries were temporary. Those priests had sins of their own. And so when they went in to make sacrifices, not only were they making sacrifices for those they represented, they were making sacrifices for themselves. Those priests offered sacrifices repeatedly because the sacrifices themselves were broken and, and, and limited in what they could accomplish. But Jesus is not a priest like that. He, the eternal Son of God, became our high priest by entering into our world and experiencing everything that we have so that he could rise above it, so that he could experience it without sin as if we had experienced it without sin and then become for us what all priests of all time had always been, an advocate for the people they represent, one through whom those people come to God. That's what, that's what much of Hebrews is about. That's the new teaching that Hebrews introduces, and, and it does it more fully than any other place in the New Testament. Jesus is greater because he knows our needs perfectly. He experienced everything that we have, and he did it perfectly without sin. Here's the way that chapter 2 puts it. This is verses 17 and 18. He had to be made like his brothers. The Son of God had to be made like us if we are to be his brothers. In every respect. Why? That's what we were asking. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is greater because he's a perfect priest. He brings us to God. Finally, one more thing before moving on. Jesus is greater because he is God come to us, that's his role as son of God. Jesus is greater than other options that were on the table because he, is, he brings us back to God, his role as high priest. And here's the twist, here's the final piece of the puzzle that Hebrews articulates as beautifully as anywhere else in the New Testament. Jesus is greater than other options for connecting with God because Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice. Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice. Now, as I mentioned before, most priests offered sacrifices on behalf of those they represented, but the sacrifices of animals, Hebrews tells us, were never enough. It's not that there was something wrong about the system that was in place throughout the Old Testament. It's just that it was limited. The whole purpose of it was to remind people that they weren't what they needed to be. That's why every year... The priest would have to go in on the Day of Atonement and make this sacrifice for the sins of the people committed during the previous year. They had to do that every single year as a continual pointer back to the fact that they weren't who they needed to be. They weren't who they needed to be. Something else was going to have to happen. These sacrifices were not enough, and they were never meant to be. They point ahead to a perfect sacrifice that was yet to come. Jesus offered himself. He offered a sacrifice so perfect that Hebrews tells us it never has to be repeated. And once he'd offered it, he sat down. He sat down because the job was done. Now, before moving on, I want to admit up front, there is a lot, there's a lot about these images that we're going to get into that's foreign to us. There's a ton of cultural distance between the world of Hebrews and, and, and our world. It's full of objects I've mentioned before that just don't have resonance for us. Things like these temple instruments. and There, there are parts of Hebrews that go into great detail describing the rituals of the temple and, and the different chambers in the temple and who got to go into which chambers and what kind of sacrifices were necessary. There's a lot of blood scattered throughout the book. There's references to a guy named Melchizedek who for some reason we're supposed to know that because Jesus is connected to him, therefore Jesus is better I mean, these things don't immediately connect with us. We don't read a passage about Melchizedek and say, oh, that's why Jesus is better than all the other options that are on the table, because he's connected to Melchizedek. It's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge, in other words. It's going, to be, it's going to be work for us to bridge that cultural distance. But in spite of all of those references that don't immediately connect with us, what, what we're going to find as we dig into it is that the question Hebrews is meant to address is just as relevant today as it was then. It's ultimately, if if Hebrews is anything, it's an argument that you can't find salvation, you can't find what you're looking for, peace with God, satisfaction in life anywhere but through Jesus. And that has everything to do with what we need. If we had needed enlightenment or inspiration, God could have sent another prophet. right? He could have sent some charismatic figure who had a great way of putting things in a way that helped us to connect with his will and really want to obey it. That's what he could have sent us if that's what we needed. And many religions in the world emphasize this. What we need is enlightenment. We need to understand things differently. We need inspiration. If what we needed was just a new way of life, then he could have given us a new law. Or he could have given us Jesus as a model for how to be perfect. Jesus as an inspiring example of what it looks like to live in obedience. But Jesus was much more than that. Ultimately, what we need is for someone to come to us and do what we can't do. We need someone to accomplish something for us that we can't accomplish for ourselves. We need someone who can be obedient because we weren't obedient. We need someone who could pay what we owe so that we wouldn't have to pay it. We need someone to be a perfect son so that we, as imperfect children, could be called the children of God. That's what we needed. And Hebrews is an explanation to us of how Jesus provides all of those things. That's where we're headed this year. Now... This tribute to Jesus, this book of Christology, this explanation of who he is and, and, and what he's like and what he's done for us, it's got a profoundly practical purpose. In fact, some, some of the folks who write about this book don't even really want to call it a letter because it reads more like a sermon than it does like a letter. The point of Hebrews is never just to instruct people about what Jesus is like. As, as, as beautiful it is, as it is on that front. It's always to encourage them to do something or to, to, to be something different because of who Jesus is. Here's, here's one way of getting at that feature. Here's one way you're probably going to notice it. If you take time to read through the book, which is something I definitely, definitely recommend that you do, uh, especially early on in our study, take time to read through the whole thing, maybe in one sitting if you can set aside you know an hour or so to do that. One thing that you're going to notice, and it might frustrate you if you're a linear thinker like I am, is that he seems to jump around a lot. It seems like he'll be getting into a good stride talking about Jesus, and then he'll, he'll stop mid-course with a section that calls for something, that says, let us strive to this, or let us stop and consider this, or some sort of call for action in the middle of this sustained and long argument about who Jesus is. And here's why he does that. I mean, it's frustrating as it might be on the surface. If you, if you know what it is that he's trying to do, it might be less frustrating to you. This is the effect it had on me. Really, the best way I heard it, this described is by one guy who said that, that Hebrews is like is, it's like a pastor preaching a sermon where, it, where his approach is to explain something about the passage and then to apply the passage. To tell you, okay, here's, here's, here's what the passage says, and this is what you're supposed to do with it. right? And he does that over and over in turn. He does point one, application. Point two, Application. That's kind of the way Hebrews reads. Argument about who Jesus is, and then a section on what you're supposed to do. And he jumps right back into the same argument, and then he, he stops for a minute and tells you some more about what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to respond faithfully to it. That's, that's what we're going to be tracing through Hebrews. And, it, and it's in those sections where he's actually trying to apply what he said about Jesus that we get his primary purpose for the book. And if the argument about Jesus is long and detailed and linear... The sections on what we're supposed to do are highly repetitive. They say the same things over and over again. And they're all full of language, calling for those who are reading it to hold on, to press forward, to persevere. It's a call to endure and to to, to latch hold of Christ because no other security would hold you. This this call to hold on mattered then, as did this picture of Christ that, that grounded the call because members of their community were in danger of letting go of Jesus. I don't know if you do this, but one of the things that I am always tempted to do is to assume that faith would come easier for me if I had lived back when Jesus did, or, or kind of around that time, you know, within a generation or two of when Jesus lived. That if I could have been around the people who saw him and hung out with him and, and watched him do his miracles, then faith would be a lot easier for me. That's, that's an illusion that I, that I struggle with sometimes. I think this letter shows us that that's not the case at all. I mean, these people probably didn't know Jesus, but they knew people who did. They were a church likely founded by someone who had walked with Jesus. They were in the same cultural world that Jesus was in, within, within shouting distance of, of, of Jesus walking the earth. And yet they were in the same dangers that we see ourselves in dangers of, of turning away from him. It's a, it's a community that was teetering. Now, based on how, the, how the, the, the writer to Hebrews tries to encourage them, to come at them, to hold on to Christ in these sections that are applying the, the book, based on what he says there, one New Testament scholar put it this way, are probably three different sorts of danger that these believers who received Hebrews were, in, were, were, were facing. Three different sources of, of threat to their faith in Christ. I want, to, I want to mention each one of those because I think, they're, I think you're going to resonate with them. I think you're going to see yourself in these dangers. He called them passive dangers, active dangers, and then external threats or external dangers. Passive ones, active ones, external ones. These are all reasons that we're likely to let go of our faith in Jesus. See if this doesn't sound familiar. So passive danger would be letting go of Jesus through apathy, right, through a lack of growth through a contentment with immaturity as a Christian. So, for example, the writer to Hebrews urges his readers, this is a, I'm just going to quote to you a few of the things that he says to them throughout the book, scattered throughout. We won't take time to look at each of them. In chapter 2, he urges them not to drift away and not to neglect the gospel message that they heard. In chapter 5, he urges them not to be dull of understanding or in chapter 6, not to be sluggish in their pursuit of Christ. One of the, cha- one of the passages that, that most clearly picks this up is in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he's got this long thing on them as basically baby Christians that they're stuck at the entry level, that they aren't ready for solid food because they just haven't even shown much interest in the food that they're eating, the, the milk that they're drinking. They're just lethargic and not growing at all, they're immature. They're in danger of losing their faith by just seeing it drift away and that is, that is universally the problem with with our condition as humans I think that that if, if you just stay put, you're always going to be sliding backwards, or maybe the better way to put that is that there is no way to just stay put. You're always either moving one way or the other, and, and if you're just apathetic, then then you're not just hanging around you're, you're sliding back into into poor habits into self-reliance and out of faith in Christ. Pursuing God just doesn't come naturally to us. Our default position is to slide back. But the Christian life is a life that's lived in light of the supremacy of Jesus. And it's that supremacy of Jesus, the the whole point of of Hebrews' case that Jesus is greater, it's that vision of Jesus as someone who is greater, who is a, a prize, who is valuable, and something to be savored. That's supposed to drive us out of our apathy. So every year I try to fight my apathy again. I come up with a new Bible reading plan that I've abandoned by mid-March if I'm lucky. You probably do something similar to to that. Apathy is something that's always around the corner for us. So the question is, what what is it going to take for us to get past that lethargy that's in our spiritual lives? And what we're going to see in Hebrews is that every time he is urging them against this kind of lethargy, this sluggishness, He's urging them on the basis of something wonderful he just said about Jesus. The idea that Jesus is this perfect and amazing being who has done incredible things, acts of love for you. And it's that vision of him that's supposed to inspire you to act better. It's not just self-will. It's not just willpower and discipline. It's got to be driven by an affection for what you see in, in Christ. So that's the passive danger. These guys that he was writing to also struggled with, struggled faced a, a set of active dangers. And the active danger is letting go of Jesus, not by just letting him sort of slip away and just letting your, your spiritual muscles grow weak and flabby, so to speak. Active danger is about, about actually letting go of Jesus intentionally, about just getting rid of him, turning away. It's a, it's a, message, or it's, it's a, it's a phenomenon that we call apostasy, to, to leave the faith willfully. And it's something that Hebrews confronts at several different times with with some of the passages that I think are the most difficult to understand in Hebrews. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 6, we get this this description of those who fall away. Let me just read this for you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 says that it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a hard one for a lot of us to to wrestle with. What does it mean for someone to taste the things of God, to have the Spirit at work in them, and then to fall away and to be, to be unable to repent even if they want to? It, what's going on there? It's one of several passages in Hebrews that we're going to have to face head-on that are really, really tough to understand. Without getting into the details of how we're going to try to understand those passages when they come, the point here is simply that these people were in danger of turning away from Jesus, of actually choosing not to follow him anymore. Why is not hard to imagine. In general, it seems like they were tempted to go back to the religion that they had known. Particularly, it seems like, based on the way he writes to them, these were practicing Jews when they came to know about Jesus. And they had had chosen to follow Jesus out of that formal context. And it would have been really easy for them to just go right back to it. To think that Jesus doesn't offer anything that I couldn't get from the system I already had in place. That's one thing they were in danger of. But, to some extent... The active danger of of leaving Jesus is no more than having a really strong love for sin. They, like us, preferred disobedience to obedience. They enjoyed the fleeting pleasures that sin offered them. And sometimes those things seem more valuable, more more savory than Jesus himself and the promises that he left. That's why, so for example, they're warned in chapter 3, The readers are warned against having a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from God. They're they're warned in chapter 10 against willfully persisting in sin. They're warned against running after the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because ultimately, what we say when we give in to sin is that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. It's that that simple. Choosing an active pattern of sin over obedience to Jesus is choosing not to trust in Jesus. That's the claim that Hebrews is going to make that's why he connects this pattern of sin with an unbelieving heart. Ultimately what we're saying when we when we choose to do things we know that Christ and his lordship have called us out of, we're saying that Jesus claim his claim to be an authority over us is an empty claim. It's not true. We're saying that Jesus death for our sins is not something that's valuable. That our sins really aren't that big of a deal. They aren't worth they aren't worth his death. His death really isn't worth anything from us. It's why in that passage we read from chapter 6, the author says that, that those who choose active rebellion against Jesus, who were once among him, are holding him up to contempt again. They're crucifying him again, he says, because they're saying, my sin's just not that big of a deal, and therefore neither is your death. And the point here is this. The author to Hebrews paints a beautiful picture of Jesus because the only antidote to sin to a lifestyle of active rebellion against God, is to be made a captive of Jesus because he's greater, because he's more worthy of our affection. The only antidote is not scare tactics here, and it's, it's not guilt bashing. It's pointing them to who Jesus is, to how wonderful he is, because that image of Jesus works into the heart, replaces the affection for sin that leads us away from him. That's the idea. So finally, active danger, passive danger, they faced external dangers. Theirs were probably different from ours, but from what we can get from different references throughout the book, it seems like they were threatened by all kinds of forces outside of them to leave their faith. They were persecuted, for example. They faced death, and maybe worse than swift death, a a process of torture and imprisonment that leads ultimately to death. These, These... believers would have had it much easier if they had just stayed Jews because the Roman Empire recognized the Jewish religion and protected it and and accepted it. But by leaving that religion and becoming Christians, they opened themselves up to all kinds of oppression, both from the government and from the communities that they were coming out of, who now were shamed by them and wanted them gone. Now, it would have been easy for them, given the, the hardships of their lives, it would have been easier for them to just go back, to give up their faith, it would have been easy for them to wonder if Jesus was actually worth what he was costing them. They could have wondered whether he could deliver on his promises, given what they were experiencing in that moment. Ultimately, their, their wonders, their concerns are probably the same ones that we've had. When we struggle, when we suffer, isn't it tempting to say, what good is faith in Christ if this is the life that it gives us? You know, if this is the result of it, if this is what we have to go through? Then then what's the point? Hebrews portrait of Jesus was meant to encourage his readers to hold fast to him in the face of danger. He's arguing to them that Jesus is worth trusting even when our experience is painful and he's he's more valuable even than the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's an argument that Jesus is greater, and He's greater than our apathy, and He's greater than our pleasure, and He's greater than our obedience and our disobedience. He's greater even than the very real pain and fear and disappointment that we experience. He's greater, so hold on to Him. One of the things, one of the passages that I most look forward to us studying together is not one of those warning passages, but it's an actual, uh, it's a positive example of what this kind of faith in Christ looks like. Hebrews chapter 11 has been called the hall of faith is this roster of faithful believers who have lived before those who, who he was writing to. That he's pointing back to and saying, that's what it looks like to live in faith in Christ even when, when what you see around you doesn't seem consistent with what you're believing. So he points back to Noah. Imagine Noah, he says, who is faithfully building this ark even though the, the things that God told him were coming, this, this flood and this judgment, there was no sign of that anywhere. We're told that he labors for a, a hundred plus years building an ark for a land that had not known the kind of rain that could lift that ark off. He, he looked like he looked like he was crazy and yet he persisted in faith. He points to Abraham. Think about Abraham who leaves everything that he's ever known for a promise of a land that is that he doesn't even know where it is. He's just going because he's called. He's told he's going to have descendants and yet he's too old to conceive and so is his wife. They They went out, though, in obedience because they believed in promises that may not have been seen, that may have been unrealized, but that didn't seem to them unreasonable. This chapter is an illustration of what it looks like to hold on to him, even when what we experience doesn't match up with what we are holding out for. Here's the way he puts it in Hebrews 11. We'll close with this. Talking about these figures that he's just listed off, this roster of the faithful, he says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, They would have had the opportunity to return. They could have gone back to what they left, but they knew what they left. They knew it didn't offer anything. As it is, verse 16 says, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The call of Hebrews is the call to look to Jesus, to everything that he represents and the promises that are found in him, And to hold on to those things, even when what we see around us tells us that those things can't be true. It's a a call to live for what has not yet come. To live as if it's true and as if it's real, as if it's more valuable than what we do see around us, the things that we can see. It's to live for the unseen, not looking back to our past lives. We know what's in those past lives, and it doesn't deliver. It doesn't satisfy but to live for the hope of what could be. To live for the unseen is not unreasonable, it's just unrealized. That's not the same thing. Hebrews is here to help us live in that tension. And that's why I'm so excited that we will be spending the next year in this book together. Let's pray that God will bless our study and that he will give us hearts to receive it with joy. Lord, help us, we pray. The book is so beautiful and yet so foreign to us in so many ways. And we know that on our own we won't be able to, to break through. And so what we ask for is eyes to see it. But even more than that, we want to be moved by it. We want our hearts to respond to it, to, to leap with joy at its message. And that, that response is just so far outside of our ability. We can't manipulate it. We can't, we can't control it through the music that we sing, through the quality of the messages that we bring. That is, a, that is the kind of response that only comes when your spirit moves in us. And, and that's, that's what we want so badly this year. So would you give that to us? Would you help us to see that Jesus is greater and to hold fast to him because of the image that comes to us through this book? That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.